All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 42 to get us started tonight. We're going to try to cover really the largest group of verses in our study of Joseph that we will cover. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 42 and try to make our way to the first part of Genesis chapter 45. Now, part of the reason that we can do that is this is a study on Joseph. So like there's a rather lengthy passage in the middle of this that deals with Judah and the other sons of Jacob as they come to Jacob and try to get the permission to take Benjamin back with them to get more food. We're not covering that at all because Joseph is not in the story at all. And this is a study basically dealing with Joseph. As I think about Joseph and meditate upon him, there are things that just really interest me. I ask questions as I read these stories, and God's recorded them for our admonition. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us that twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But where did Joseph get his convictions? He had them as a young man. He's totally different than his brothers, brought up in the same house as his brothers. Now, we can't say he had the same mom and dad, but he did have the same dad than the others. But Rachel was the one, if you'll remember in the story, when Jacob and his wives and the handmaidens, when they leave Laban, it is Rachel who took the false gods with her, not the others. And that is the mother of Joseph. So where on earth did he get his convictions? What is that from? Sometimes it's hard to explain except for this. You understand no matter how many children you have, they're all going to be different. They're going to be different in personality. They're going to be different in thoughts. We'd like them all to have our thoughts. And the reality is most of the time our children are kind of a caricature of us. In other words, there are certain parts of us that are kind of, <laughs> I got the tonges here pointing at one another, can't, can't keep my mind here on what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he ended up being a man of great convictions. And why is it? He didn't have a Bible, but he had convictions about God that he stuck to. He had convictions about what he believed about God that he stuck to. As I was thinking about that, I was wondering, at Madison Baptist Church, we're known as a Bible-preaching, King James, Bible-believing Baptist church. But I wonder, how many of Madison Baptist Church people honestly and sincerely believe that this book right here is the authoritative Word of God? If we really believe it, it will channel how we act, what we do. You admit, if we believe that this is the eternal word of the living God, and it's true from beginning to end, and it is authoritative, if we really believe that, there are things we won't do. And there are things that we will do. Now, sometimes we find it in Scripture. I believe David did some things he shouldn't do, and he knew that they were wrong when he did them. He did not do those things out of ignorance. He knew they were wrong. Sometimes because of the rebellious heart of mankind, that mankind steps away from what he truly believes and operates outside of that, and he always ends up paying a price for it. He always does. But what's amazing to me is how many people in churches today, especially young people who grow up in Bible-believing churches, when they get out, this is just a sideline kind of a suggestion for how to live. And that they think somehow things are going to turn out right if they decide to go a different way. You know, a lot of people come out of our churches like that. And let me say this. It is not the church's fault. 
It's not the church's fault. It's not the pastor's fault. It's not the parents' fault. It is their fault. They heard the truth. And they decided to walk away from the truth. Now, I'm, I haven't gotten into Joseph yet. We'll get there in just a moment. The Bible does tell us in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You see, we may not realize it, but sometimes the decisions that are made, and they don't have to just be young people, young adults, Uh, by older adults as well. But a lot of times the decisions they make simply reveal what they really are. And they'll blame hypocrites in the church for their decision. Nonsense. I mean, I was thinking the other day, if somebody, if I heard another person say they're hypocrites in the church, I was thinking about having some, carrying around some monopoly money and showing them one of those counterfeit $20 bills. There you go. It's $20. Are you going to throw away your good ones now because you saw a counterfeit? What if I throw out 20 counterfeits? Will you throw your good ones away? I'll take them from you. I'm not going to reject the true because I saw some of the false. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that it ought to make me want to be truer. I think God deserves somebody who's going to live according to his word regardless of what anybody else does. Doesn't he deserve that? Could we take up the challenge to be that way? To say, yes, I'm going to believe the book. I'm going to live by the book as much as I possibly can. I'm dedicating myself to stick to it. I'm going to be a real Christian. See, people who won't make that decision simply identify themselves as being counterfeit in their lifestyle. This is free. You're not paying for this one. We didn't take up an offering. This is free. Think about your conviction, where you stand. You've got a Bible. We could make excuses for Joseph. He didn't have one. But, uh, you know, God doesn't make excuses for Jacob. (laughs) And he didn't have one either. We've got the whole thing. God left nothing out. We've got all 66 books. So we've got the truth. And if we can read, we should know better. Amen? Uh, Just something for you to think about. This is just some of my meditations and musing. Notice chapter 42, verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. The servants are no, the servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. And Joseph said unto them that, that is, that is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies, hereby ye shall be proved. 
by the life of Pharaoh, ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Now, we'll not have time to read all the verses in the story. We will refer to many of them. Just to set the background, remember, Joseph is basically anywhere close to his adult life from the age of 17 on to 30. We find him suffering at the hands of people who did him wrong. It began with his brothers. His father didn't do him wrong, except for maybe having him as his favorite son, which automatically brought animosity toward him from his other brothers. The Bible told us in the chapter we were introduced to this family three times that his brethren hated him. Another time we were told that they envied him, and envy often breeds hate, whether it be in a family or being a church or being at work with a group of people, it often brings hate. So they sold him into slavery. Initially, they were talking about killing him. And you remember Judah is the one who came up with the plan to make some money. Since we're going to get rid of him, let's get paid for it. They sold him to the Midianites. The Midianites sold him to Potiphar. And he ended up with the Lord being with him, being at the head over Potiphar's house. Now, being the head slave, I don't know that that's something that you would be striving for. But he decided to be all that he could be in the situation he was in. He was faithful to the Lord. He would not be like the Egyptians. He did not give in to Pharaoh's wife's advances. As a result, he gets thrown in prison. So he says, spent 13 years of his life like that, and in prison, the Lord was with him. You know, for the Lord being with us, it does not matter the occasion. He is always with us. Whether we be abased or whether we abound. Remember, Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Joseph obviously never would have chose the slave house. He never would have chose the prison house for himself. But God had chosen it, and he spent that time 13 long years serving the Lord. And then we read last time how Pharaoh dreamed a dream and the butler remembered his problem. He had forgot the uh, prophecy that Joseph had given to him that came true. And he pointed out Joseph to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh identified the dream as being seven years of very prosperous years for Egypt and then seven years of great famine. And so Pharaoh made him the number two man in all the land to take care of the land. So now we are in, after seven years, we get to chapter 42, we are in the second year of the famine. That means nine years has passed. Joseph, at this time, is at least 39 years of age. Even though he's num the number two man of Egypt, you'll notice he's not carried any animosity toward his family. He waits for them to come to him. He is a very patient man, and that's one of the things that we see first of all in Joseph. He is a patient man. Now, as we read the story here, some may have been wondering, why didn't his brothers recognize him? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. After all, he has been gone now for 22 years. And the reality is, usually somebody who is... Uh, let's see, who is 39 years of age, does look somewhat different than what they did at 17. Not only that, he looks like an Egyptian. By this time, he knows the Egyptian language. He's going to speak to them through an interpreter. It tells us in the midst of the story, he does not talk to them in the Hebrew tongue to begin with. And so here's a man who looks like an Egyptian. Last time they saw him, he was a slave. There's no telling what could have happened to him. They figured he was probably dead by this time. They had no idea that he was the number two man in the land. No expectation to see him whatsoever. So his appearance was different, dressed in the Egyptian garb, and they figured him dead. And so they never even thought about the possibility of this even being Joseph, their brother. So the Bible says in verse 8, they knew him not. In verse 7, it said, he made himself strange unto them. And he spoke harshly to them. Notice his patience in all of this. A lengthy period of time is going to take place before Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brothers. 
Not going to happen till they come back the second time. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. He'll have to wait until the second meeting to reveal himself because there are some things he needs to learn about his brothers before he is going to make himself known to them. I mean, to me it's amazing that he loved his brothers. It's amazing to me that he loved his family. Usually we can love friends and family as long as we don't perceive them as having done us wrong. Bible tells us we're supposed to love our enemies. You know, we can't get away without loving people. We're still responsible to love people. And we find Joseph following through on that. How many families are estranged over some slight? Not slavery, but disagreements. Now, I come from a family. Um, There were five of us kids. And we were never really close. I mean... There was four years between my oldest half-brother and me, another four years between me and my sister, and 11 years between me and my younger brother, and then another uh, three years on top of that, my youngest sister. I would say in the last 25, no, maybe 30 years, we've only all been in the same place at the same time three times. Now, some of you come from families where you're very close. And you talk all the time together. In my family, we can go years without talking to one another. Every family has a little different dynamic. Isn't that true? And listen, we can go years without talking to one another without being mad at one another. How about that? You say, you must not like one another. No, I love my family. We just don't talk. They've got a life, I've got a life, and guess what? That's fine. Now, there are others of you in here, you've got family situations just like that that you come from. And that's okay. Uh, Here he is, though. He's got the power. He's got the power to destroy them. He's not going to do that. He at least has the power to get even. He's not going to do that. I mean, when he became the number two man, he could have sent a company of Egyptian soldiers up to carry them back down and throw them in jail. He didn't do that. He has waited patiently for this time. Why? He was willing to wait for the right time. You know, that's an interesting thing about Joseph. It's really all of this has been about timing. God could have made him the number two man in Egypt when he was 17 if he wanted to. But for him to do what God was preparing for him to do, what God was going to have him do... He needed the time as a slave. He needed the time as a prisoner. He fulfilled that time right by serving others. He didn't deserve to be in that place. That wasn't the issue. God was working in his life. Just like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Bible tells us because of the abundance of revelations that were given to Paul that God allowed a messenger of Satan to put a thorn in his flesh, lest he be exalted by the abundance of the revelations that were given him. Bible says, For this thing he besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from him. And then Paul gives this testimony, But he said unto me, My strength, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded with an amazing statement, Most gladly, therefore, Will I glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me? Timing. Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of, a woman, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. God could have sent his Son right after the sin of Adam and Eve. He didn't do it. He waited 4,000 years before he sent his Son. It's a matter of timing. God's time is always right. When Jesus got word that his friend Lazarus was sick, his friend whom the Bible, the scripture says that he loved, he waited two more days and the Bible lets us know because he loved him. When he got there, he was already dead. His sisters that he loved also, uh, that's Lazarus' sisters that Jesus loved also, had been through four days of heartbreak and mourning. 
But as the songwriter wrote, when he's four days late, he's still right on time. He got there at the right time. They were going to get to see the blessing of the resurrection of their dead brother. But you know, they couldn't see the resurrection of their dead brother unless he died first. It's impossible for there to be a resurrection without dying first. So thank God. God's timing is always perfect. By the way, it's perfect in your life, in your life as well. Now think about it for a second. If his brothers hadn't changed, this is something Joseph doesn't know. Are they the same envious, hateful brothers that they were before? He doesn't know that. He could have just automatically given them the land of Goshen. He had that power to do that, but he doesn't do it now. As a matter of fact, he talks to them rather harshly. Why? Because he's going to have to find out what kind of men they are. Do you realize if he brings in the men who were still what they were when he was sold into slavery, can you imagine the wickedness these men would have gotten into? His own life would have been in danger. No, he doesn't even talk about making them the dwellers of Goshen, the best of the land of Egypt. Not now. It's not the time. Timing is everything, as somebody says. Remember what they were like when he last knew them. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 28, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. So he needed some proof that there was a difference in them. And then we see his temperance. He would have to control his emotions. If you look at verse 24, the scripture says, and he, uh, let me read verse 23 and 24. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept. He didn't do that in their presence. He turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Now, at this point, these are his brothers. His heart is yearning for them, but also for his father, Jacob, and also for his brother, Benjamin. He does not let his emotions rule the situation. He rules his emotions. You know, something that our forefathers had in America, for the most part, they were a people who could work and do the things they needed to do in spite of whatever emotions that they had. They did right. They were hard workers. They weren't telling themselves all the time they needed a break today. When we were an agrarian society, people living on the farms, man, they had chores to do not five days a week, but seven days a week. They'd have to get up early in the morning. The cows needed milked early in the morning and in the evening as well, and they needed it seven days a week. There was no break. Things were going to work out right. Here, we're talking about four-day work weeks. We got people today doing all their work at home. Nobody goes off into work. And they're working under their own hours. There's no pressure at all. That's not been the history of America. May I say that the situation today has not helped us. It's made us a people of less character than what our forefathers had. I mean, we have people in Madison Baptist Church can remember when they were young that they would have to, that matter of fact, there were days they didn't go to school because they, they uh, picked cotton all day. Backbreaking work. Hot work. Many times they would work out in the field. Like their dad who would get up early in the morning and after eating breakfast, or maybe first he would do some things, then eat breakfast and then work all day and come in in the evening for their meal, then go to bed because they were wore out and that was it. There wasn't much playtime at all. They had the blessing of not having computers. Now, I better not get too far afield from this. But the point is, he was able to control his emotions. He's not showing that to them now. They don't need to see it. It's not important. We need to live above our emotions as well. Because we are responsible for our actions no matter how we feel. This leftist crowd has got all Americans today 
thinking that it's all about, well, I was bullied. That's why I did it. That's no excuse to kill other people. Amen. How wicked can you get? What, who hasn't been bullied? And today you wonder what it is to bully. I guess I was bullied all the time because my friends cut me down all the time. And we laughed about it. And if at any time we got cranky, we just smacked one another. And then we were best friends that afternoon, go out playing another ball game. You learn to deal with it and get over it. I hate to tell you this. Everybody's not going to like you. Live with it. Some people are going to think bad things about you. Live with it. Just get it. Grow up. Be a responsible human being in this world. It's not fair, Pastor. It's just not fair. I didn't deserve it. Grow up. By the way, a lot of the people that get bullied, all this bullying on the Internet. I got a cure for that. Get off the Internet. Then they can say about you anything they want. You're not going to know it. You're not on there. Get off the... You'd probably spend your time more usefully accomplishing some things that really matter in life if you got off the Internet. Temperance, control, that is controlling your emotions. Later on in chapter 43, verses 30 and 31, it says, He entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and restrained himself. Proverbs 16, 32 declares, He who ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. Hmm. Now, modern psychology tells us we got to let everything out. We just have to let everything out. No, you don't. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that it's a fool that speaks his whole heart. You don't need to say everything that you feel. Keep it in. You won't explode. Now, part of the problem we have in this country today is watching way too many violent, killing TV shows and movies. We think that we are the avenger of anybody that we perceived has wronged us. And that is wicked and wrong. Get in the Bible. Become a Bible living Christian. It'll help you greatly in dealing with this stuff. Some good prayers would be like Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O God, my strength and my redeemer. Or Psalm 141 and verse 3. He said, a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. And keep the doors of my lips. So we see his patience. Then we see his probing. Joseph's treatment of his brothers was designed to find them out and to help them. You'll notice in chapter 42, 9 through 24, he, uh, we see he, what he's doing is probing to check their character to see if it had changed for better in the last 20 years. And how he does that is to kind of mirror their transgression. Uh, What do you mean? Well, you look in verse 9, for instance, of chapter 42. And the scripture says, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. Verse 14, Joseph said unto them, uh, That is that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. And then verse 16, Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're, you're spies. You understand with his accusation. If it is considered true, if they're guilty of it, it means death. They're thinking. Now, he knows they're not spies. He knows who they are. What's he doing? He's testing them. Testing them to find out if there's been a change. So he puts them in prison for three days. And then he lets them out, all except Simeon. Simeon's going to have to spend time in jail as an incentive for them to come back with Benjamin. He's teaching them some things. The accusation, you're spies, they accused him of being a dreamer, you remember, before they sold him into slavery. You're a dreamer. Well, God had given him a couple dreams. That's true. That's true. By the way, most everybody dreams. Do you know that? Most everybody has dreams. And thank God we don't tell all our dreams. Amen. Uh, Then the imprisonment, they had imprisoned him, you'll remember. They had put him in a pit before they sold him off into slavery. And now he changes from sending one 
back for Benjamin to letting them all go and just keeping one. And you remember when they first took him and threw him in the pit, they were talking about killing him. And then they changed their mind, and thanks to Judah, thinking they could make some money off of him, they sold him into slavery instead of killing him. Now, that makes me think that perhaps, and by the way, you'll notice that he had bound, he had uh, Simeon bound, and they did it, he did it right in front of the brothers. The brothers. Now, why was that? I personally think Simeon was probably the one who was calling the loudest and the longest for the death of Joseph before. So he's being kept back. You know, sometimes if you can get the ringleader set aside, you can put down an uprising. Just get the ringleader. There are a lot of people, they'll follow a ringleader, but they won't go out there on their own. And he's keeping Simeon aside, which makes me wonder then, he's thinking, you know, if I let him go back, nobody's coming back with what I've told him. Perhaps he was. Now, I'm just guessing with that. You understand that. They bound him for their eyes. Uh, by the way, later in chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, Jacob calls Simeon cruel and an instrument of cruelty. So Simeon was known for his bad temper and his wickedness. Remember heavenly wisdom given to Joseph to find out their character and to see it come about. For instance, uh, Nathan used the mirror principle when he told the story about the rich man that had several sheep and the one man that had one ewe lamb, and the rich man went and took that one man's lamb and slew it and ate it, and David was angry. Said that man's to be put to death and he is to be restored fourfold to that man that had his lamb stolen. And it was Nathan who said, Thou art the man. You're him, David. That mirror principle. Then we see the transformation examined. Notice in chapter 43, beginning in verse 16. Verse 16, it says, And when Joseph saw Benjamin, now they're coming back. We're not covering all that took place while they're gone. And you'll remember when they left that, that uh, Joseph had had all the money restored in the sacks of the brothers. I'm going to tell you something interesting to me on this, which put a little question mark on their character. When they opened their sacks the first time and they saw the money in the sacks, why didn't they go back then and say, hey, we found this money. This is what we were going to use to pay it. But they don't. They just leave. Makes me wonder a little bit if they were thinking about coming back for Simeon. But they're gone anyway. So when Joseph, here they are coming back now with Benjamin. And it is Judah who has put himself up as the one responsible for the safety of Benjamin. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of the house, bring these men home and slay and make ready. It's a good thing that Egyptian knew what Joseph was talking about. Because just reading that, you might think, is he being commanded to put him to death? No, to make food. This, the Egyptian understood it anyway. Uh, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time, are we brought in that we may seek, he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for a bondman and our asses. You remember, he didn't treat them real nice and friendly the first time they were there. So now they're suspicious. But because of the famine, they're going to need the food and stuff that they've come to get. And their families are going to need it. And it says, and they came near to the steward of Joseph's house. And they communed with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack. Our money is in full weight, and we have brought it again in our hand. That's smart. And other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food, and we cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. 
Now, notice the answer from the Egyptian. And he said, Peace be to you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out unto them. Who would have taught this man about the Hebrews' God? Who do you think? Joseph. Joseph's testimony. Now, here's a man who didn't worship Pharaoh. He served Pharaoh. He didn't worship Pharaoh. Here's a man who did not worship the gods of the Egyptians. That's Joseph. He still worshiped his God. That was something that Joseph was settled on. Didn't matter. He already proven that in the slave house. He had proven that in the prison house as well. So we go on. The man brought them in into Joseph's house, gave them water, and they washed their feet. And he gave them their asses provender, and they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom he spake, is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant our father is in good health, he is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom he spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste. For his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians might not eat bread... With the Hebrews, notice, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Let me make a statement here about race. It's not a race problem. It's a difference problem. You need to understand that. We don't like, when I say we, I'm talking about mankind. I'm talking about humans. We don't like people who are different. And that's where it comes. For instance, over in Rwanda, you remember several years ago, the Hutus and the Tutsis were killing one another. They killed a million. Floated many of those bodies down the river into, is that Lake Victoria? Into Lake Victoria. I mean, they killed millions of their own people. And what amazed me was to find out that the Hutus and the Tutsis weren't just different tribes They were two different factions of the same tribe. Why on earth were they killing one another? Because they're different. You could look, a Hutu could look at a Tutsi and know that was a Tutsi and the other way around. Matter of fact, going out to West several times uh, to be with a missionary to the Navajos, one of the things they let me know was that there's a lot of animosity between the Navajos and the Apaches. Now, if you've been out there, you know that the Apache Reservation is kind of a patchwork reservation. And a lot of times, Navajos and Apaches are in the same cities and stuff, but they have always had a lot of animosity between their two different tribes. And I said, no, wait a second, they're all Indians. He said, you don't understand, they're different. I said, can they tell one another apart? I mean, they see one, oh, he said, definitely. So I asked the missionary, I said, you, can you tell the difference between the Navajos and the, and uh, I was going to say the Tutsis, I guess you'd be able to do that, the Navajos and the Apaches? And he said, oh, yes, I can. I said, well, explain to me how. I'd, I'd like to know the difference. He said, I can't really explain it, but you look at them and I know. Interesting thing was that missionary had an identical twin and most people couldn't tell the difference between them. That leads me to another story that I'll not tell you right now about them. But you, for instance, the problems between Asians, the Chinese and the Koreans, the Koreans and the Japanese, 
Why do they dislike one another so much? They're even, quote unquote, same race. Problem is, they're different. You see, the problem that we have is being different. Now, in this particular case, here's Joseph, the number two man in the land. And here he is, the number two man in the land. The Egyptians are not going to eat with him because he's a Hebrew. He doesn't seem to care. And they're not going to eat with his family. And he doesn't seem to care. That's not the point here, is it? This isn't about race. Now, in Joseph's case, part of it had to do with the fact of his position. And you'll find that a lot of times different positions allow you to be part of something or not to be part of something. And that's not necessarily bad in itself. But when it comes to a hatred and animosity toward folks who are different, it's simply wrong. It's just wrong. Get over it. Because we all are of one blood. It took just as much of the blood of Jesus to cover every human being as anybody else. And when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, shouldn't I love what God loves? We're responsible for that. You see, believers are different than the world. We should be. Anyway, we move on. That's just an extra lesson that he gets there. Now, if you notice in chapter 43, he sets them down to eat. And by the way, he sets them down in order. Uh, Notice in verse 33, And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. And he took and sent messes unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, what, what is Joseph doing here? First of all, he's getting them to believe that he knows things, that he can divine, because he set them down in the order of their birth. Now, that would be almost impossible for anybody to do and get right, because you understand those oldest 10 kids, they were all born within six years of one another. From the first one to the last of them. Now, Benjamin would be easy to determine that he is definitely the youngest one. But for the others, without knowing them, and this is just an Egyptian with no knowledge of the family. And as far as they know, that's what he is. He sets them down that way. And then the strange thing is, he gives the boy five times more to eat. He's wanting to see if there's jealous toward him as what they were toward Joseph. He's checking them out. He has got a plan. He's examining any transformation. We find when we get to chapter 44, you'll notice, and he commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put every man's money in his sack's mouth and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their asses. And when they were gone out of the city and not yet far off, Joseph said unto a steward, Up, follow after the men. And when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded me evil for good? Is not this it in which my, my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. So he has his cup taken and put in the mouth of Benjamin. When they come after them, he sends his own men after them. When they come to them, they search all their sacks. When they get to uh, Benjamin, and so far as they know, nobody's taken it and nobody has taken it. Joseph has set them up, but they don't know it. And specifically for Benjamin. First of all, if these guys have not really changed, if they hate Benjamin like they had hated him, then he needs to put his brother under protective custody. So he's setting them up for that. But if they have changed, they need to show it. 
So when they get there, of course, they're all troubled and bothered because now Benjamin is going to have to be brought back and end up being a slave to Joseph, so it appears. Joseph, or uh, Judah is troubled because he has made himself the, the surety ship in or, uh, for Benjamin, which means he can't go back and see his dad without that youngest son. And what he does is he offers himself to be a servant. This is the man who said, let's sell him and make money. And now he's willing to give himself completely for Benjamin. Now, when that takes place, we see that he is convinced then that these guys are real. Notice when you get to chapter 45. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Now they have no clue. Imagine what starts running through their mind. They were just worried that something bad was going to happen to them because of the cup. And now they hear, I am Joseph. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything here in this point, but they had to be stunned. It's like, what? This, This is unreal. Joseph. How can you be Joseph? Is it Joseph resurrected? No. This is Joseph. That's the statement that's made. They're basically speechless. But notice what he says. He says, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Let's see, Joseph. Joseph. This is Joseph. Oh, no. What's he going to do to us? If he's Pharaoh's number two man, he doesn't have any reason really to put us to death. But this is Joseph. What's he going to do? How do you think Simeon would have responded had he been the one sold into slavery? He would have enjoyed watching them die. You would think. So now here they are in a strange land. They're in Egypt. Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, right there with that statement, I can imagine the thought started running wild. But he continues. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. He said, God did it. Now, you sold me, but God did it. To preserve life. Why should he be mad? Why should he be mad? Righteousness here triumphs over evil. You see, he didn't judge the situation in the slave house because he knew God had something for him. He didn't judge the situation in the prison house. Wait until God finishes what he is working. And then judge. We judge right now, where we're at, right now. But is God through with you? All right, let's say you're going through a really tough time. And it could be, perhaps, God has used somebody to hurt you. How are you going to respond? Do you really, really believe the book? How are you going to respond? Maybe some person at work has done something, stabbed you in the back and hurt you. How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to respond like a believer? Are you going to respond because this situation is so bad right now, I can't take it. God knows what you can take. You know, God never apologized to Job for what he allowed the devil to do to him. As a matter of fact... When God comes on the scene in the book of Job, he rebukes Job. He doesn't say, Job, I know you've had a hard time. 
I want to thank you for standing for me, though, most of the time. Problem is, though, you justified yourself and not me. And he rebukes Job. How does Job respond? Job says, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. We need to look at these things in our life through God's eyes. God's working in your life. God's working in your life. Sometimes these missionaries, they can't understand why they can't get that visa approved right now. It'd be so much easier if we could get it approved right now. But somebody up there is probably wanting a bribe. Somebody's probably wanting something else. And it's keeping me from doing what I want to do right now. And my motives are so pure. But God knows what he's doing. If you don't believe that, man, you're going to kill yourself on the mission field. You've got to be willing to let God do what he's doing. And don't judge him because it's not pleasant right now. So here's Joseph responding correctly. And how does he treat his brethren? He treats his brethren with love that they don't deserve. Why? He believed in God. He believed that God was working his will. So what kind of, let me go back to my initial statements before I ever read the scripture and got into it. Do you really believe the scripture? Is it really true to you? Are you willing to stand no matter what? I'll have news for you. Throughout the church age, numbers of believers have been tortured and murdered simply because they were believers. And according to Hebrews, they received a better resurrection than others. God knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I pray you'd use these truths in our lives. May we spend some time meditating on how much we really believe what the Scripture says. And for even those who've done us wrong, I pray, dear God, you'd help us to respond like you would want us to as you reveal in the Scripture. And Lord, we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray.